realize it, but there's over 60 chapters in Scripture devoted to his life. More written about David than anyone else in Scripture except for Jesus. More than Moses, more than Abraham, more than Paul. In addition to what was written about him, he wrote at least 73 and possibly up as much as two-thirds of the Psalms, which means he may have contributed more to the Bible even than Paul. Only Moses, whom tradition says wrote the first five books of the Bible, may have written more. He was a shepherd, a hunter, a warrior, a general, a king, a poet, an actor, a champion, an outlaw, a musician, a prophet, a worship leader, an adulterer, a murderer, a brother, a son, a husband, a father, a hero, a builder, an architect, an administrator. Most significant of all of him, it was said by God himself in 1 Samuel 13, 14, he was a man after God's own heart. And my favorite quote from Mark Twain, because it's so true, is that every man is a moon, and we have a dark side we don't want to show anyone. We all have things we don't want to see. With all the accomplishments and acclaim devoted to David, there's absolutely no attempt in Scripture to hide his dark side either. There's no effort to portray him as someone he wasn't or as someone who was perfect or had everything together. He's like us. He has that dark side. In fact, that's one of the great things about Scripture because it's not a book about perfect people who have their lives together. There's no attempt to cover up failure, even for the most righteous. It shows them warts at all. What sets them apart, though, is it shows that God's grace is always greater. Or as we sing, grace greater than our sin. Today we look at David's dark side which sometimes makes it difficult. And yet, even in the midst of his failure, he still remained a man after God's own heart. He was someone whom the Thompson Chain Reference Bible says, in the Bible there's no character who more fully illustrates the full moral range of human nature, the good and the bad. Just like all of us, he was a sinner in desperate need of God's mercy. And that should give us hope and encouragement. But all of it almost came to naught because of what at the time would have appeared to be a very small thing that happened in his life. Sometimes it's the little things that trip us up and bring great harm. Not long ago, if you had visited the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains, you might have seen a truly majestic, seemingly indestructible living wonder, a giant sequoia, one of the oldest living things on earth. It was a sapling when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee. It was reaching its maturity when Columbus first landed in North America. It looked down from its lofty heights during the Civil War. For almost 
or over 2,000 years, it stood defying both the windstorm and the earthquake, survived wars and floods and fire and drought, and was even struck 14 times by lightning, and yet it survived and thrived and grew bigger and stronger. And yet if you went there today, it's rotting on the florist floor, destroyed by something so small almost too small to notice, because several years ago, a small colony of beetles started burrowing into its bark, laid their eggs, and began to multiply. Deeper and deeper they burrowed through the bark, into the trunk, eventually to the very heart of the tree, and little by little, bite by bite, they did their work and weakened this once mighty tree to such an extent that after withstanding the elements for centuries, one day it came crashing down, and is little more than compost now. It all started with something as small as a beetle. Sometimes it's the little things that do the greatest harm, things we don't give much thought to, a word said in anger with the intent to injure, passing on a word of gospel as if it were fact, things we look at in the privacy of our room, places we go that are not going to be good or healthy for us, small indiscretions, too small seemingly to worry about at the time. But they give us just enough of a push in the wrong direction that if not checked, over time can add up and lead to bigger things, which then we have an easier time justifying as our defenses come down and we fail to keep watch over our soul. Once we let the guards down, it's only a matter of time till we discover that these seemingly small things have brought great harm. As the Song of Solomon puts it, it's the little foxes we have to watch out for because they can ruin the vineyard. Such was certainly the case with David in the passage I want to look at this morning, and it almost led to his total ruin as it happened to his predecessor Saul. In fact, in 2 Samuel 11, It's a case study in how seemingly little things get bigger and bigger and bring pain and ruin, if not checked. 2 Samuel 11.1 begins, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It's the time when kings go off to war, but David stayed home. Such a small thing. But like the effects of those beetles on that giant sequoia, something as seemingly insignificant as taking a break from his work when he should have been with his soldiers almost ruined him. Again, it didn't because of God's grace. Because he remained a man after God's own heart. Continues, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And as the saying goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Certainly was the case here. While his men are out in in the fight risking their lives for both he and his kingdom, David is at home now playing peeping Tom. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. The little thing of staying home now was out of control. Too big to hide, so he tries to cover it up. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked, how, asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah went, left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. David had hoped that by bringing him home, Uriah would then sleep with his wife, and when it became obvious she was pregnant, everyone, including Uriah, would assume it was from this visit. But it didn't work. So David tried something else. David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk, thinking, that'll do it. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. And when that failed, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with, with Uriah In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where they knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Tragic affair. David, a man after God's own heart, commits adultery and murder to cover up his sins. And it started with something so small as seemingly innocent as deciding to take some time off. What makes it even more tragic is that in 2 Samuel 23.30, Uriah is listed among what was known as David's 30 mighty men. These were his elite troops and fiercest fighters. They served as his hand-picked bodyguard, those closest to the king, sworn to protect him at all costs. David had betrayed a friend. In his book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard wrote about a -a two-and-a-half-year-old girl, Larissa, who was out in her backyard having fun playing with the water as her, her nana sat on the porch nearby. Nana encouraged her to water the purple flowers as she played in the water, but Larissa had discovered mud by pouring some of the water onto a patch of dirt. Nana told her not to put water on the dirt because it made mud, and mud would get everything dirty. Well, we all know how that goes. In spite of what was said, mud won out, and the little girl began putting mud into a small tub of water nearby, and she called it warm chocolate and was making a big mess. 
When Nana, who had been reading with her back to their child, looked over and saw the mess, she went over, she cleaned her up, and then returned to her reading. Only this time, she sat facing Larissa, telling her once more, don't play in the mud. But we know how that goes. Once more, the little girl resumed her warm chocolate routine. Only this time, she said sweetly, don't look at me, Nana, okay? Nana, of course, agreed and looked down and more at her reading. And then Larissa proceeded to make some more black mud and put some of the mud in the tub and say, Nana, don't look at me, okay? Three times she said this to Nana. Don't look at me, Nana, okay? I wonder if that might have been in David's mind, too, as he first started staring from the rooftop. Don't look at me, God, okay? He begins leering at Bathsheba, thinking, don't look at me, God, okay? He sends for her, don't look at me, God, okay? Do we do that? We start doing something seemingly small and inconsequential and say, well, don't look at me, God, okay? It leads to something else. Don't look at me, God, okay? And before we know it, something you never intended, look at how far we've fallen. One of the lessons we can take from this story is that we need to pay attention to even the little things in life because if we're not careful, they can lead to much bigger things. Small sin can quickly lead to larger sin as we begin to excuse ourselves or try to cover it up, which then leaves us vulnerable. And if left, off, if left unchecked, what starts off small grows. Someone has said in a very folksy kind of way, sin is like a stray cat. You let your kids feed it some old bologna, and the next thing you know, it's having kittens under its porch, under your porch. You don't, David didn't set out to sin. It just kind of happened along the way. He didn't spend time throughout the day thinking and planning what he was going to do that night. He didn't set out to commit adultery. He didn't start the day planning to have a friend killed. He simply got careless and didn't think it was that big of a deal. Or perhaps a better way of putting it, he didn't think at all. He simply followed his desire and let his gaze wander and then let it linger where it shouldn't have been to begin with. And then he spent the rest of his life facing the serious consequences of what he had done because the remainder of the book of 2 Samuel largely deal with the repercussions of that one small thing. His family and his reign never did fully recover. In spite of his attempts to cover it up, the child of adultery died. Years later, his family suffered when one son raped the sister. And then another son killed that brother and then fled the country and remained estranged for the rest of his life, eventually committing treason, attempting to stage a coup that almost succeeded. And then as David lay dying... There's palace intrigue between two other sons, both trying to lay claim to the throne. And it all started with something as small as, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Like David, we allow sometimes little things to become big when we allow our attention to linger on a sight, on a thought of some past slight or hurt we suffered, or a desire we shouldn't, 
As James 1, 14 and 15 says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Well, another lesson we can draw from this story should be one of tremendous encouragement and hope. Because God wasn't looking for perfect people any more than as he is today. He's looking for people with hearts who are humble before him. Because even in the midst of such horrible sin and failure, David discovered that with God there is grace. Through the years spent in the fields watching sheep, through the tremendous victories over Goliath and the Philistines, years of hiding in caves and the ups and downs, goods and bads, victories and failures in his personal life and role, David remained a man after God's own heart. It's a story about one day how a large male lion decided to make sure that all the other animals knew who was the master of the forest. So he went to the gazelle and he roared, Who is the king of the jungle? And the gazelle, trembling, answered, Why, you are, mighty lion. And he goes to the zebra and he roared, Who is the king of the jungle? Fearful, the zebra answered, Why, you are, O mighty lion. And he goes to the monkey and he roars again, Who is the king of the jungle? And startled, the monkey answered, Why, you are, O mighty king. Finally, now he's full of himself. He goes to the elephant and he roars, Who is the king of the jungle? The elephant immediately reaches out, grabs the lion with his trunk, whirls him around the air like a top, slams his body to the ground several times, flattens him against a large boulder, The now beaten, bruised, and battered lion struggles to his feet, and he looks up at the elephant and said, look, just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean you have to take it personally. (laughs) Sometimes we get too full of ourselves, even when we're confronted, and refuse to take responsibility for our actions. That's what happened to Saul before David. Even when confronted by Samuel, he went right on with what he was doing, thinking he was above it all, that God had chosen him, and that's all that mattered. David, on the other hand, a man after God's own heart, when he was confronted by Nathan, he showed what it means to be a man after God's own heart. He realized he wasn't any better than others. In fact, he confesses his sin. He confronts it and takes responsibility for his action. He doesn't try to hide it any longer. But he knows that God's grace is greater in spite of everything he had done, he kept his priorities straight. In 1 Kings 11.4, it says, his heart was fully devoted to the Lord. That word devoted means it was undivided. So even though he fell, even though he did horrible things, in the midst of it, he never turned away from God, but he turned toward God when he realized what he had done. Sometimes we point fingers when we need to simply accept responsibility. Or as one preacher put it, David's life reminded him of a compass needle. It wiggled quite a bit from side to side, but it always returned to due north. We're never too far for God to reach us. I want to close with one of the most personal and heartfelt of all the Psalms that David wrote when Nathan confronted him with his behavior with Bathsheba. 
There's no denial, no extenuating circumstances, no resistance at all. He knew and he freely confessed his sin, and in doing so, he revealed what God meant when he called David a man after his own heart. Psalm 51, David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew our loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. For then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves me. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. For the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So look with favor in Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bowls again will be sacrificed at your altar. That's the words of a man after God's own heart. In the midst of it all, he found God. Our Father, we thank you that in the midst of it all, we can find you too. That life does have those times where we fail to account for even the small things, and before we know it, the slide has begun. But no matter how far we go, you can still be found. And so, Father, we thank you for that grace, which is always greater. Thank you for that salvation which cleanses us, even as David said, and makes us white as snow. We thank you now, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing our hymn of invitation and commitment? And if you have not experienced that cleansing freedom that Christ offers, we invite you to pray with you, either now, here at the front, or after the service, if you would like someone to pray with you as we sing together. Thank you.